Well, I trust you brought your Bibles with you, and so turn to Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to look at eight verses that command our attention. Verse 14 down to verse 21 closes out the first section of this book, which is the wealth of the believer. Paul spent so much of his time talking to men about God. That was his passion, wasn't it? Wherever he went, he represented his Lord, he gave his testimony, he taught people the word, he evangelized one-on-one, -on -one, masses of people. He loved to speak to men, generic men, mankind, men and women, about God. But Paul also loved to talk to God about men, and that's what he does tonight. In fact, if I were to title this message, I would call it How to Talk to God About Men. And I don't mean this is a study just for women, how to talk to God about men, but how to pray for people. We need to do both. We are called to talk to people, mankind, about God, but we are called also to talk to God about mankind. In fact, you need both to be effective. If you want to effectively reach people in evangelism and give a good witness, you need to pray for people as well, that God would open up their hearts. So we're going to look at these verses. As we do, I'll ask you a question. I don't want you or expect you to answer it out loud. Do you pray? Do you pray? How do you pray? What do you pray for? How often do you pray? How long do you pray? Now, I don't know the answer to all those questions, and I'm not putting you on the spot and asking you afterwards to tell me all those answers to those questions. But if we knew the answer to those questions, we would know an awful lot about you. You can tell a lot about a person by what they pray for, how they pray, how often they talk to God, in what manner, etc. It would give you great insight into that person's relationship with God and belief system if you just examine their prayer life. Well, let's examine Paul's. In verse 14, For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might, through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God." Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end, and all God's kids said, Amen. that was about a third of God's kids, all of God's kids said, Amen. much better. When I was a kid, I had a problem. I have many still. One that I had then that I don't have now is that I love to eavesdrop on my parents' conversations and my brother's conversations. It helped me strategize my way through the week. If I knew what they were thinking, if I knew what they were planning, I could second-guess certain decisions, I could preempt certain things, I could derail certain things. It just helped if I could stand by the door every now and then without them knowing it and put my ear close enough to hear what they were saying. When I first married Lenya and we moved here to Albuquerque and we were getting to know each other, the problem persisted. But I had a fascination in what she was saying to God. And so when she would have her devotions, and she's often very vocal about them, she'll sit there and talk to God out loud and sing. I love to put my ear up to the door and hear her eavesdrop on her prayer, her communication privately to God. And I'll tell you what, I was both blessed and convicted. 
blessed at the relationship she had with her Lord, convicted because I wanted one just like it. It helps to eavesdrop on biblical prayers. Jesus gave the longest, his longest recorded prayer in John 17. Paul gives two in Ephesians, and we're going to eavesdrop on him tonight. Before you do, I'm going to read a couple of things that parents wrote down in eavesdropping on their kids. They listen to their kids when they tuck them in at night, and some of them are noteworthy. Here's kids talking to God. Talk about fresh. Debbie, age seven. Dear God, please send a new baby for mommy. The new baby you sent last week cries too much. <laughs> Do you have trade-ins, Lord? Eight-year-old Angela, dear God, this is my prayer. Could you please give my brother some brains? So far, he doesn't have any. David, age seven, dear God, I need a raise in my allowance. Could you have one of your angels tell my father thank you? It's great to pray while dad is there. Diane, age eight, dear God, I am saying my prayers for me and my brother Billy because Billy is six months old and he can't do anything but sleep and wet his diapers. Amen. One child got his prayers and his poems mixed up and he prayed this, Now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep, and if he hollers, let him go, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Well, that's kids. You're about to eavesdrop as you have read already with me eavesdropping on a, a prayer of one of God's greatest servants, Paul the Apostle, who prayed this and wrote this while he was in a Roman prison, chained to Roman soldiers, and recorded this prayer in part of his letter to the Ephesian church. And so we understand a little bit about him. Um, the first prayer in Ephesians 1, or Ephesians, just for reference, we're not going to go back over it, but is in chapter 1, the second part of the chapter, verse 15 on down. He has stopped his educating them, and he starts praying for them. Right in the middle of his letter, he's already done it once. And now he does it twice. He gives them more information about their wealth in Christ, and then he pauses once again, to pray. This is just Paul's style. He does it also in Philippians. He does it also in Colossians, is that he will record his prayer for the church that he's writing to, to be able to read it. The disciples asked Jesus a question. Lord, actually a request, teach us to pray even as John, referring to the Baptist, taught his disciples to pray. Evidently, these 12 men following Jesus around had noticed something about him, noticed a power, noticed a capacity, capability, and energy about him. They noticed that sometimes he would spend all night in prayer to his father or get up early and they'd look at each other, hey, where did the master go? Oh, I see him up on the hill. He must have gotten up early. He's been out praying. And in observing him in those kind of communications with his father, it's, I believe, based on that observation that they said, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. And Jesus did. When you pray, say, our Father who art in heaven, and you know the prayer. It's very famous. Paul teaches the church at Ephesus also how to pray. And we get great understanding and insight into this kind of man by doing it. I've always believed that if you want to learn how to pray, read Bible prayers, see how they did it. Not only how Jesus taught it, but how Jesus himself did it, and how Paul and Peter and others, if it's recorded, what they said, how they interpreted what Jesus gave to them in terms of instruction, and how they fleshed it out in their own life. It's, it's, it's one of the best things you could ever do, and I love to study and teach Bible prayers. In fact, and this isn't a plug for the book, but... I believe it's a helpful tool. I just finished a book called When God Prays based on Jesus' prayer life in John 17. 
and how he followed basically his own template that he gave to them in the Lord's Prayer. And some of the key things Jesus prayed for before his crucifixion that give to us a template in how to communicate effectively with God. And um, so it's available. And again, it wasn't just a plug. It is something that I believe is a helpful tool. Now tonight, in these eight verses, I've divided it into three because I believe it is divided into three. Paul begins where we should begin. When you talk to God, you shouldn't just jump in and go, Oh God, help! Now there are times you must do that. Peter had to do that. He was sinking, right? He didn't have time for a long, flowing, filled with long verbs, King James English kind of a prayer. He was sinking, and he didn't say, Oh, Lord God, maker of heaven and earth. He just said, Help! And he meant it. It was sincere, and it worked. But that doesn't mean, Oh, great, there's a Bible prayer. That's how I'll pray every day. Help! 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 There needs to be more depth, and there is, even though there's eight short verses, Paul begins with adoration. After adoration, he moves into intercession. He prays for them, for the Ephesians, and he prays for four things for them, and I'll cover those in a minute. And he closes, sort of the same way, but a little bit different, with a benediction. So he opens and closes, he sandwiches the praying for people with praise and worship to God. Adoration. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. I pointed something out last week that I need to point out again, because it's the same exact phraseology. He says, for this reason. For this reason goes back to verse 1. And notice what he does. For this reason, verse 1, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, and then you'll notice, is it the same in your Bible? There's a dash after Gentiles. Meaning that verse 2 to verse 13 is an interruption of that thought. And, by the way, verse 2 all the way down to verse 13 is a single sentence in the Greek language. Paul says, for this reason, hold that thought, expounds on something. Now he goes back to this, so you could actually put them together. You could put 1 and 14 together. You could say, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the thought. The stuff in between is an interruption. Paul gives a thought, interrupts himself, gets back to the thought. And it was a very good interruption. So the question that we would ask then, well, if for this reason in verse 14 goes back to verse 1, where it says, for this reason, what does that go back to? What is he speaking about? He's referring to chapter 2, specifically, I believe, around verse 13 and 14. So if you want to understand this, if you want to get the context, this will help. Let me read it to you, or you can read it with me. You've got the Bible. Chapter 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been made near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down the middle wall of division between us. We covered that last week. We understand that the cross leveled the playing field. It doesn't matter today if you're a Jew. It doesn't matter today if you're a Gentile. If you're in Christ, you're in a new family, a new family, the family of God. God has reconciled people back to himself, which means they can be reconciled to each other. You see, if God loves you and forgives you, and God loves the person you didn't want to sit next to tonight that's on the other side of the room, if God loves them and forgave them, then you ought to love them and forgive them too. You're part of the same family. And that's the gist of it. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, those who are dead in Christ and those who are still alive. 
He says, I bow my knees. <laughs> we wonder if he meant this literally or metaphorically. If he meant it metaphorically, he means I am devoted and I praise and worship and honor him. If he meant it literally, it would have been an interesting thing to be in his prison cell as he is chained next to a Roman guard. And he says, pardon me, buddy. And, of course, he would be dictating this to an amanuensis, right? He would, he would dictate his letters to people who'd write them down. And maybe he was literally bowing his knee. Now, this brings up a question. When we pray, what is the proper position? What's the best posture to pray? Should we stand? Should we stand with arms lifted? Should we sit? Should we be face down on our knees facing east? Uh, should we be swaying back and forth? What's the best position? I grew up in a church that had wooden pews, wooden kneelers. I believed then, and I still believe, they were invented by the devil <laughs> to make kids hate prayer. It was the most uncomfortable thing. And the message I got every week, you want to talk to God? Suffer. Suffer a lot. Well, if you look in the Bible, Abraham, Genesis 18, stood and prayed to God about Sodom and Gomorrah. But over in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, Jehoshaphat got down and bowed before the Lord on the battlefield before he went out to battle with Moab. Jesus was on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane. Later on, he fell face downward, prostrate before God. Daniel faced Jerusalem three times a day, as was his custom. Uh, David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, says he sat before the Lord and gave a prayer of thanksgiving. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, I will that men everywhere lift up holy hands when they pray, without wrath and without doubting. So what's the best form of prayer? All of them? Not all at once. But whatever physical form helps you pray the best is the best. Now for me, I don't like to sit very long. I get antsy very easily. Even in meetings, my staff knows I often get up and walk around or just change positions. It's hard for me to just sit and focus. It's just the energy that, you know, courses through my body. So when I pray, I walk. I like to walk and think out loud and pray out loud. Uh, I pray when I drive. I don't close my eyes when I drive and pray. I don't close my eyes when I walk and pray. I'd be a mess, as would others. There were three ministers who were arguing this point of posture in prayer. And they all had their own view, and they were very strongly opinionated about their view. As they were discussing this theological issue, in the background was a Verizon phone technician. He was listening. And one minister said, I believe the only way to pray is with head bowed and hands folded, fingers pointing upward toward heaven. The second minister said, that sounds good, but I disagree. I think you must be on your knees with your head down. The third disagreed with both of them and said, if you want to respect the holiness and grandeur of God, you'll fall flat on your face. That's the best and only posture for prayer. Well, the Verizon phone technician behind them was getting a kick out of the conversation, smiling the whole time, and then he butted in. Gentlemen, pardon me, but I've discovered that the best prayer I ever prayed, the most sincere prayer I ever prayed, is when I was dangling from a telephone pole by my heels suspended 40 feet off the ground. <laughs> now, I'm not suggesting that that's what you must do, but certainly you can see how he would pray very sincerely in that position. I bow my knee. You can do it literally. But I'll tell you what, the position doesn't matter as much outwardly as the position of your heart inwardly. Because Jesus spoke about those who love people to look at them. When you pray, he said, don't be like the hypocrites who love to stand in the synagogues 
so that everybody notices them standing or on the street corners. Now, if you were to drive by San Mateo and Manal tomorrow and you saw a few guys standing out there on the corner swaying back and forth, you would notice them. Everybody, they'd be stopping traffic. But the point is, they got noticed. <laughs> the point of prayer is you do it for God, not for other people. So, I bow my knees. The best way to begin prayer is with adoration, is with worship. To bow your will, to bow your heart before God, to surrender to Him. It's not about getting your will done, you know that. It's about getting His will done. So, I bow. I bow my knees, figurative perhaps, of I bow my will, I bow my heart. It's the best way to begin prayer. It's how Jesus said we ought to do it, right? When you pray, say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And that's how he himself prayed, John 17. And lifting his eyes toward heaven, John 17, 1, he said, Father, glorify your Son, that your Son may give glory back to thee. That's how they prayed in Acts chapter 4. The early church were hassled by the Sanhedrin. And they gathered together back in that upper room. And they told the rest of the disciples, Hey, we've been hassled. Hey, it's a law. We cannot pray or we cannot preach publicly in the name of Jesus in the temple courts. And hearing that, they lifted up their voices in one accord and said, Lord, you are God. You made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything that is in them. Who by the mouth of your servant David has said, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing, etc.? They began by acknowledging who it was they were praying to and worshiping him. That's the best way to begin. It's the best way to begin. God loves to hear your needs. God loves it when you cry out to him. God loves it, I believe, when as a child of God you say, God, help. But please, learn to get more depth than just, I need your help. Get more depth to it. The Lord is your friend. Be careful that you don't let your relationship with holy God deteriorate to just, God's my buddy boy. I sometimes hear people speak about God, and I don't like the language I hear. They have reduced holy God to a buddy. He's my buddy, my man, my main man. No, he's not. He's Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, who is sovereign and holy and righteous. And we should remember that. Reverence is a part of our worship, part of our prayer. Even the Jews, still to this day, when they pray, they almost invariably begin this way. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam. Blessed art thou, Lord God, the king of the universe. That's how they begin. And then they formulate their request. That, that's really what Paul is doing here. Now, second, he moves from adoration to intercession. So, verse 16, he begins, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, length, depth, and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is intercession. This is praying for other people. It's not easy for me to pray for other people. I do it. I do it every day. I have a list. I didn't bring it. I suppose I could bring it sometime and show you exactly what I do, but I don't think I need to. But I pray for people. I say it's not easy. I find it very easy to pray for myself because I'm very in touch with my needs. I'm very in touch with my wants. But for me to pray for other people means I have to start thinking about what they need. I have to start focusing on them and caring about them. And because we are human, it's just not that easy. But it's, it's the bulk of Paul's prayer here, intercession. He prays for four things. He prays, number one, for stability. I'm going to just sum them up in four easy words, stability. 
He prays, number two, for intimacy, that is in the relationship with God, stability, intimacy. He prays for charity, that is love, their love for each other and knowing the love of God. And number four, he prays for capacity, capacity, that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. So we only have a few verses left. Let's just consider those four. First of all, he prays for stability. He says that God would grant you, verse 16, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. The inner man. That's the emphasis. You're going to notice something if you do as I suggested. If you start studying Bible prayers, you're going to start noticing an emphasis that maybe you didn't think was there. In both chapter 1 and chapter 3, those two prayers of Paul, in the prayer that Paul prays for the Philippian church and the Colossian church, the emphasis of Paul is on spiritual needs and he focuses on the person's inward person, not outward person. Not the outer man as much as the inner man. That's his focus. And that's Paul's focus here, is on the inner man. Don't get me wrong. It's not that God isn't concerned with your outer man. But truthfully, what is most people's concern about their lives today? The outer man. My weight. My looks. My skin color. My hair color. My clothing. Is it in fashion? Those occupy the forefront of concern in our society. Paul's prayers, Bible prayers, focus on the inward. Why? Well, I think Paul's on to something. If your inward man is okay, your outward man will fall into place. That doesn't mean you'll automatically be fit. But Jesus did say you'll be satisfied, put it that way. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these other things shall be added unto you. Am I saying don't exercise? No, I exercise. Am I saying don't eat the right kind of foods? Just let yourself go? No, I like to eat good, healthy foods, because I want to serve God in the strongest possible manner as long as I can. I want to take care of the temple. But the focus here is on the inward man. Now, what does that mean? What is the inward man? You could call it your heart. You could call it the core you. It's who you really are. It's your mind, your thoughts, your motives, uh, your affections. It's not your brain or your heart organically, but it's, it's the things that really make you, that control you. It's the things you yield to, the things that you prioritize. We need inward strength. Here's why. You have two natures. Right? You know this. The nature you were born with and the nature you were born again with. Called the new nature, the new man, the new you. That's called the spirit. This is often referred to as the flesh. Paul said the flesh and the spirit war against each other. The flesh is saying, what about me? Pander to me. Me, me, me. Outward man, outward man. Your spirit is saying, feed me. I crave communication with God. I need the Bible. I need prayer. I need fellowship with believers. Your outward man says, no, forget that. You can do that anytime. God will always be there. The Bible ain't going anywhere. Me, me, me. So you've got this thing going on. You have to decide which one you will feed mostly. You're going to feed both of them. I got up this morning and ate. I fed my face. I respond to my hunger. But I also must respond to my spiritual hunger and strengthen the inner man, or else the body appetites will take over. And Paul said, I keep my body under, right? I keep my flesh subdued. You plant flowers. You plant trees. You don't plant weeds. You take care of flowers, you take care of plants, you fertilize flowers, flowers, you fertilize plants. You don't take care of and you don't fertilize weeds. You know why? You don't need to. They grow up naturally on their own. And if you're not careful, take over the garden. Your new nature will not automatically grow. The inward man will not automatically grow. You have to tend it, you have to feed it, you have to nurture it. The old one will automatically grow. 
I read an article, National Geographic, about the Alaskan bull moose. It's not that I'm a fan of the Alaskan bull moose or collect articles on the Alaskan bull moose, but this had a spiritual corollary. Every fall, the male Alaskan bull moose, or what is it, mooses, moose eye, moose, these characters, these creatures, fight each other. They fight each other because it's mating season. And when they fight, they lock antlers. It's, it's literally head to head. Their antlers come crashing into the other antlers. The antlers, is their own, it's their only weapon. So if they break, they lose, and the other male is dominant, and there's the mating season. He sort of takes over there. The stronger the antlers, the bigger the mass of the moose, generally that one will win. Now here's what the article said. That means the battle that is fought in the fall is really won back in the summer when they eat. When they're eating, when they're eating the right kinds of things, when they're out, that determines their growth and their strength for the fall so that they can fight. And so it is with us. Our inward man needs to be strong. We've got to watch what we eat. We've got to watch our communication with God. We have to feed it. So when the fight comes, we'll win. So that's what he prays for, spiritual stability, strengthening of the inner man. Second thing he prays for is spiritual intimacy in their relationship with God. Notice verse 17. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, why would he pray that? Why would he pray for Christians, right? These guys are Christians. Why would he pray for Christians of whom we would say, theologically, Christ is already dwelling in their hearts, right? If they know Christ, if they've come to Christ, where does Jesus live? He lives inside them. So why would Paul, the great apostle, writing to a church, praying for a church, Say, and I pray that Christ will dwell in your hearts. I mean, chapter 1 and chapter 2 said this group was predestined, uh, appointed by God, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, redeemed, forgiven. So why do you pray Christ would dwell in their hearts? Did they mysteriously backslide? Have they lost their salvation between chapter 2 and 3? No. This isn't the best translation. The Greek word dwell, kat Oikeo. Isn't that a fun little word? Kat oikeo. It's a combination of two words, kata, which means down, and oikeo, which means to inhabit or to dwell, to live. Kat oikeo literally means to, to dwell down inside of something. Or we would render it, settle down and make yourself at home. In fact, the Kenneth Weiss translation, I've told you about this before, the expanded New Testament translation puts it this way, that Christ would finally settle down and make himself at home in your hearts through faith. And I think that's the intention. Jesus doesn't want to just be in you. I'm saved. I received Christ. He wants to feel at home in you. When you go somewhere, when you read something, when you watch something, does Jesus feel at home there? You know, you go to some people's home and they say, make yourself at home, and yet, don't touch that. Okay, okay. Don't put your feet on that. If you put, ask me to make myself at home, my feet will go up on tables. That's home to me, man. I kick back. How at home does Jesus feel? I've read before, and I've told you before, and you probably even discovered on your own, this little booklet put out years ago by Robert Munger, Robert Boyd Munger, called My Heart Christ Home. It's a, it's a picture as if Jesus just came into your house. He's an invited guest. And now Jesus starts going through all the rooms in your house to see what's there and start rearranging things, because after all, Jesus is now in charge. So he starts looking in the entertainment room, in the library, which is your mind, in the recreation room, in the dining room, what you're feeding on, etc. Um, there is a little section in that book where he writes this. He, Jesus, entered with me and looked around 
at the books in the bookcase, the magazines on the table, the pictures on the walls. As I followed his gaze, I became uncomfortable. Strangely enough, I had not felt badly about this room before, but now that he was there with me looking at these things, I was embarrassed. There were some books on the shelves. His eyes were too pure to look at. On the table were a few magazines. Magazines a Christian has no business reading. As for the pictures on the walls, the imaginations and thoughts of my mind, some of these were shameful. Now, now just what if? What if Jesus literally came into your house? He showed up one day. He was there, and you got over the shock. Wow, it's really you. And he goes, yeah, you know, would you invite me in? Sure, come on in, Lord, it's your house. And he starts in your family room. And so he says, hey, let me check out your videos. Let me look at your DVDs and, and your CDs. May I? How would you feel? Well, great. Look at them. You want to watch one? Which one would you pull out? Which ones would you feel uncomfortable that he saw? What if then he said, hey, let's go into your office. Do you mind if I turn on your computer and check out the websites that you frequent? How comfortable would you feel? Is he at home? Or is he just, well, he's there technically. I raised my hand. I prayed that prayer. Is he at home? That Christ may dwell at home in your hearts. What if he said, hey, can I see your checkbook? I just want to see what you spend your money on, what, what you're into, what's so important to you. Well, uh, sure, Lord. Uh, yeah, go ahead. I, I noticed... You don't do anything for my work. Well, I gave a dollar to that Salvation Army guy last week, you know, rang the bell and even got a receipt. <laughs> I think we better move on. You get the point. He prays for intimacy, that Christ would make himself at home. The third thing he prays for is love or charity. Look at verse 17. That you being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. That's charity. That's love. He prays for their depth, man. Rooted and grounded. Isn't that a picturesque a, 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 a riveting way of describing a person's life. When you're rooted, you're, you're stable, you're deep, you're not shallow, you're connected to something that gives you nourishment. Roots go down deep and they take the moisture from the soil and they uh, take the nutrients and they uh, turn them in through photosynthesis into the sap that then runs up through the trunk and the limbs and the leaves and the fruit, etc. Rooted and grounded. I pray that you'd be deep enough in God's love that as Christ dwells in you and is at home in you and you learn how much he loves you, that because you're rooted, the idea then is that you would be able to flow through into other people that love. I think that's the idea. The connection implies that. Rooted and grounded in love. And that you may be able, same thought, I believe, to comprehend with all the saints. What is the width, length, depth, and height? And to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. When Jesus was in a room with his guys, it was the night before he was uh, crucified, he was in an upper room and he did something they didn't expect. Remember he took a towel, wrapped it around himself, and started washing their feet. And then he put the towel away and the basin away and he said something very interesting he said I've done this as an example that you should do as I have done now when they finally got past the awkwardness of does he mean we should really start washing everybody's feet every time we eat he said this toward the end of the meal as I have loved you even so or like that you should love one another you've experienced my love my unconditional, sacrificial love. You should love one another. Your roots should be deep enough that you can take and absorb and be nourished with my love, but then have enough then to pass it on to others. As I have loved you, love one another. 
How does he love us? He loves us unconditionally, sacrificially. When we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He loves us often non-reciprocally. Sometimes when we don't show any love to him, he's still consistently loving us. Now, what is it to be rooted and grounded in love? It's that you understand Christ's love so much, you get so much out of it. You're tapped in, you enjoy it so much that you can give so much of it away and you haven't really lost any. You haven't lost any. How should a husband love his wife? Even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, sacrificially, unconditionally, and without reciprocation sometimes. How should a wife love her husband? Same. How should parents love their children? Same. How should children respond to their parents and respond to authority? Same. That's the idea. Love. Understanding the love of Christ, letting it flow, rooted and grounded. You know what I imagine one of the greatest compliments God could ever receive would be? Now, I know you, maybe you haven't thought of that before. How do you compliment God? God, I love you, I praise you. I think one of the greatest compliments God, your Father, could ever receive would be this. Lord, this person that I don't like, that I find it difficult to love, I choose to love him because that's what you would do and that's what you want me to do. So I'll do it. I'll do it because you want me to do it. I'll do it because you have loved me so much and forgiven me so much. I'm going to do it. Now, that doesn't mean sloppy agape. That doesn't mean just sentimentality. There is a responsibility with love. But the idea that because of who you are, what you've done for me, I choose to love, that's got to be a great compliment to God. Now, we have a paradox here. Did you notice it? He asked them to know something that's unknowable and know the love of Christ which, which passes knowledge. How do you do that? How do you comprehend the incomprehensible? How do you apprehend the inapprehensible? How do you know the unknowable? The love of Christ passes knowledge. Paul says, I pray that you'd know it. It's, I believe, similar. In fact, I think it's parallel to another scripture. So I'm going to turn there and read it to you, can I? It's in Romans 8. Listen carefully. You could turn there if you want to, but I think by the time you find it, unless you have a marker like I do, it'll be over. Romans 8, verse 37 to the end. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, listen, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's love is immeasurable. Now, some of the ancient commentators saw this differently back in Ephesians. They looked at the height and the depth as the cross, the vertical pole of the cross stretching up into heaven, stretching down into the ground, into the earth, was figurative of God condescending from the height to the depth of our sin. And then the crossbar, the patibulum, where Jesus stretched out his arms and nails were driven through, showed the width of the love of God, the embrace that, that God would embrace anyone through Christ who would come to him. And that, all of that, is the depth to which he will go to rescue men and women. That's how they saw it. And that, that could be summed up in sort of a modern quip. You may have seen it on posters or bumper stickers. It says, I asked Jesus how much he loved me, and he said, this much, and he stretched out his arms and died. The cross, the greatest demonstration of the love of God, height, depth, length, the breadth, or the width of the love of God, which passes knowledge. Okay, let's go to the fourth. Fourth thing he prays for is for capacity, capacity. He says in verse 19 that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The word plerao, pleroma, fullness, filled, means to be filled to capacity. I will admit to you 
I am not filled with all the fullness of God. I'm filled with God. You're filled with the Spirit. You're full of Christ Jesus. At certain times, we are more than others, right? But we all have, according to this verse, a lot more to grow, right? We always have more to grow into. All the fullness of God. We haven't attained. He means by this either A, that she'd just be totally dominated by God, so filled with God that he dominates every thought. And probably that's what he has primarily in view, or else he's thinking way into the future, because really the only time Skip is going to be filled with all the fullness of God is when he's dead and in heaven. Psalm 17, I will be satisfied when I awake in thy likeness. 1 John chapter 3. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it didn't know him. Beloved, we are the children of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we'll be like him. For we will see him as he is. At the coming of Christ, when I'm with him in presence and I see him, I'll be changed and I'll be able to have that new capacity. But I think primarily we shouldn't go so far into the future that we neglect the present. I think he's saying you just be dominated with God completely. All the fullness of God, a great spiritual capacity. However much you've experienced of God up to this point, let me tell you there is more. There is more. You haven't tapped all there is to tap. You haven't experienced all there is to experience of God. I don't know about you, but I thirst and hunger for more. Amen? Don't you want to grow more and understand more and experience more of him? Great way to pray for people. Great way to pray. There was a tramp in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, who got off at a station and he was begging for money. Tapped a man on the shoulder and said, pardon me, sir. Could you spare a dime? As that man turned around, the tramp recognized it was his father, whom he hadn't seen for years. And the man, the tramp said, Father? Father? Do you recognize me? And his father threw his arms around him, clutched him tight, and he said, Oh, my son, I've been looking for you for years. You want a dime? All that I have is yours. And that man said, can you imagine, here's a guy asking his own father for a dime when his father, who was wealthy, was ready to give him everything. Don't be content with a dime from God. The Lord promises you everything. Full inheritance of spiritual blessings. The fullness of God. Great thing to pray for, great thing to aspire to. Now the final part is that last two verses, and that's what we'll close with, a benediction. So adoration, intercession, and now this last little utterance of praise or benediction. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Now, now don't let Paul fool you. When he says amen, doesn't mean he's done. He's still got three chapters left. What it does mean is that Paul, I love this about him, would develop a thought, and then the thought would sort of like turn around and slap him upside the head. He'd like be struck with this thought, and he'd go, wow, praise God, man, hallelujah. Now that's a surfer's way of saying now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. <laughs> he just gets off on the truth to the extent that he writes out this benediction. I've studied this, and I love it, and I sometimes quote it in cards to people. It's a, great, it's a great thing to consider. I think what Paul is doing linguistically is trying to pull out every verbal descriptor and, and show you something. So I've sort of retranslated it into its English visually. I'm going to give you a pyramid. It's going to go up on your screen. Now to him, next thing, to him who is able, Stop right there. Stop right there. Take that back. Take it back. Take it back. Take it back. <laughs> Just consider that. God who is able. When you are unable, God is able. He's the only one that is able to do 
all of these things you ask for. God's able. Next. To him who is able to do all we ask or think. Next. To him who is able to do above all we ask or think. Next. To him who is able to do abundantly above all we ask or think. And just when you thought, okay, I get the point, he goes on. To him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all we ask or think. The question might be, how can he do all that? Because he's powerful. Did you notice those two words? According to the power that works in who? Us. Oh, it doesn't say just the pope or the preacher or the elders or staff members, but us. All of us who are in Christ Jesus. That's wealth, man. That's wealth. By the way, the word power is the Greek word dunamis. You're familiar with that if you've studied with us for any length of time. Dynamic. Dunamis. Some people say, oh no, it really means dynamite. Well, it does. It can be translated that, but I think too many people are going to pieces already. I, I prefer the idea of a dynamic an ability that comes from God. He didn't want you just to explode. That was cool. Can you do anything else? No. I can shout really loud. That's it. Dynamic. And then the word works in us. Energeo. You're familiar with energy. God's dynamic energy that works in us. And oh, how we want it to work in us. Amen? So, here's the template. When you talk to God about men, begin by acknowledging who it is you're talking to. Praise him, worship him, consider him. Then move in to whatever it is you're being specific about, but it's good to include this. It's good to include these four things and then to end with, oh God, I know you're able, you can do anything. And all of that helps you go away from a session of prayer with God, not by going, I hope God does something. But you've just realized he's ultimate in power. Lord, I have confidence that you will work. You will act according to your will. By the way, he says, for this reason, right? Goes back to verse 1 and then verse 1. For this reason, goes back to chapter 2. Paul is praying in chapter 3 for this reason, for something that is already revealed by God in Scripture. The mysteries unraveled. Jew and Gentile become one. We're one family. So based on that truth, I'm going to pray for these things in the family of God. One of the keys to getting your prayer answered is to pray according to the will of God. I tell you, it makes all the difference in the world. It's called results. You can pray all day for what you want, no results unless it's exactly what God wants. Well, how do I know what is the will of God? Well, that's where this comes in. Prayer and the Bible go hand in hand, neck and neck. Study the Bible. Study Bible prayers. Find out just general principles to give you a gauge to walk in in the will of God. And then you can pray very confidently. Lord, I know this is your will. Amen, you're able to do it, you know, like Paul did.